Lord Richard Keeble, I love you. Because he turned to me and said, Phil, how is it you get these passages? I have two words to say to you. Lisa and Holmes. <laughs> you can sit down now. Do you want to do next? <laughs> Go away. <laughs> uh, so the story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, I, I so remember this story in Sunday school. And, uh, and what I find really remarkable is that when I, when I looked at it in kind of like children's Bibles, and first of all, I'm not entirely 100% sure that this story appears in children's Bibles. Um, I need to do a bit more research. But I remember hearing this story and nodding along to it, kind of brushing over the fact that this story is about child sacrifice. And I was nodding along to it. A couple of years ago, I watched um, what was called the, uh, the Bible mini-series. Perhaps you've, you've seen it. Um, it's a cracking, um, cracking series of, of, of um, videos, of, of episodes. And the first one enc- encompasses the story of Abraham. And I watched the, the story of Abraham unfold. And this is a, this is a, a clipping from it. Um, and I watched Abraham take his son up the, the mountain and set up the altar, and raised the knife, and I thought, this story is horrible. It's horrendous. What am I doing nodding to it as a six-year-old going, yeah, it's very nice, isn't it? This is an awful story. It's an absolute horror. And so when I look at it now, there's a lot of discomfort with, with this story. Abraham's this hero of faith, but he actually, if you look at the stories, loads of times he, he messes up, he lets God down, doesn't trust him, but yet he's a hero. But this story, which is kind of the pinnacle of his story in a way, uh, makes me feel really dis- uh, uncomfortable. How could a father do this? How could a God ask his servant to do this? What about Isaac? In the midst of this horrible story, I think there's some top comedy. Okay, go with me. <laughs> Just visual the scene. You know, Abraham's walking up the mountain. He said goodbye to his servants. And uh, Isaac's carrying the, uh, the firewood with his dad. And then at some point on this journey up this mountain, Isaac goes, hold on a second. You've got the knife. You've got the fire. I've got the wood. Uh, something's missing. Where's the lamb? <laughs> and Abraham says, God will provide it. Almost like, you know, here's a packet of sweets to keep you quiet till we get there. <laughs> Maybe this is a disturbing story and my reflections this morning is me just trying to put a positive spin on it. If it is, forgive me, but I think there's something worth wrestling with. This story, this event of Abraham offering Isaac for sacrifice in the Jewish tradition is called the Akedah. And it's read each time at Rosh Hashanah. And, uh, and it's read uh, to remember this kind of ultimate sacrifice that Abraham is prepared to make. But even in the Jewish custom and Jewish teachings, there's a lot of um, discomfort about this. In fact, there's some theories about trying to understand what Abraham is doing. And these are some of them. First of all, was Abraham kind of in a deep depression at the time? Was he mentally unstable? That's one of the interpretations to try and justify what is this guy doing. Perhaps it's punishment from God for the times that he let God down or for the way that he treated Hagar and Ishmael. Another one, which I think is quite humorous, is that Simply, this account is when Abraham misheard God. 
And God said, can you take your son up to do a sacrifice? And Abraham went, to sacrifice. So it's just one big misunderstanding. Not entirely convinced myself. There's even a theory that Isaac was 37 years old and didn't mind being sacrificed. I don't know. I'm over 37. I still don't think I'd be up for that. But one of the main understandings of this is that this is a prime example of devotion and obedience and trust. A prime example of faith. How do we get our heads around this? Because it is actually a shock story. This story is meant to shock. But I think it shocks us in a way that didn't shock those who first read it. And let's have a think about it. As I said earlier, this story is one which is about child sacrifice. It's not pleasant. If we knew anybody who in the name of God said, oh yeah, I've just come down from a mountain where I carried up my firstborn son, put him on an altar and was just about to kill him and decided not to, I think we'd probably be on the phone to child protection services, don't you think? Kind of breaching some safeguarding issues there. This is a shock story. It's particularly shocking to us when we are surrounded by so much news about the damage that's been done to children, particularly in the name of faith. I'm not just talking about the horrendous stories that are coming out from institutional religious houses of the damage that's been done over many years to children, which is utterly appalling. I'm talking about throughout um, the, the world, there are many things. If we hear about stories in Rwanda where child soldiers, children, were taken and were given Kalashnikovs and told to shoot their own family for the sake of the cause or that other people would, would die otherwise. That's a sacrifice of a child. What about Islamist militants who put a, a suicide vest on young teens in the Middle East and they go and they become suicide bombers? What about devastating breaches of not just the, these headline things, but what about the neglect that there is in our family situation around this society that we live in? The broken downness of the family unit. The number of fatherless children that there are around this world. And children who are, who are stuck in, a, in, in adoption situations because they are just not convenient to life. So maybe we shouldn't be too quick to think this is a very distant story. This is a shock story which resonates today. But why was it so shocking back in the day of Abraham? First of all, it's important to know that child sacrifice was really common in Abraham's time. In fact, just earlier this year, there was um, an archaeological dig around Turkey, and they discovered a pit of a huge number of, of human sacrifices. They were ritually killed. And among them were children and young people. In the royal, guard, the royal graves in a place in Ur, where Abraham came from, they found the graves um, of, of humans who had been sacrificed. Child sacrifice was common worship in Mesopotamia at the time. We also read about it in the Iliad, if you're, if you're a classicist, about a child being sacrificed in order for the Greeks to go and fight and kill more people. Because this is how the pagan sacrificial system works. You want to have a good crop. You want your family to be secure. But you've got to keep the gods happy. So, right, we have a good crop. Let's take some crops to say thank you. So we give them crops. And the following year, it's not such a good harvest. So the God mustn't have been happy. We need to give them more. Well, maybe our crops aren't good enough. 
So instead of giving our crops, let's give some of our animals. Let's give the best of our animals to this God to keep them happy, to keep them on side. But yet, after a while, that's not enough. And so not just our crops, not just our, our animals, but maybe we need to start sacrificing bits of ourselves. So hair is cut off. Or the prophets of Baal slice themselves and bleed for the sake of their God. And yet the gods are still not happy. You're still worried about how can we keep this God on our side. And so what's the next thing this God might want? Well, what's our most precious thing? Our children. And so the firstborn needs to be sacrificed. But even then, are the gods happy? I don't know. That's the pagan sacrificial structure in which Abraham, right back when he was in Ur, he was called out of. It says, you come out of your father's household. That's your gods. That's your culture. Come out of that. So the shock for these guys was not the fact that a child was potentially being sacrificed. The call wasn't a shock. This Yahweh, this God who'd called Abraham out, he's looking back and going, he's been good to me. He's called me out. He's blessed me already. He's kept me safe. He's given me this kind of career prospects. You know, I need to keep him happy. So how do I keep him happy? This is all right. He's asked me for my son. That's normal practice. In fact, is it an honor to take your son and sacrifice him? This is not shocking in Abraham's day. And so as Abraham goes up uh, this, this rock with his son, as he leaves his servants behind and they're carrying the wood, as he builds this stone altar with Isaac and then lays the wood out on top of it neatly, as he binds his son's hands up. Notice what God keeps reminding us in this story. This son, this son whom you love. He's binding his hands up. The son he has desperately wanted that God has given him. And he puts him on an altar. And as he raises the knife, that is not what is shocking in this story. What is shocking is the fact that after all this process, God says, stop. That's what's surprising to the first readers of this story. Uh, to, to Abraham's culture. To Abraham himself, perhaps. We'll look at that in a moment. God says, stop. You see, whenever we read the Bible, whether it's in our quiet times or devotions, whether it's even in preparing a sermon or a Bible study, whatever, we easily fall into a very simple mistake. And we ask questions the wrong way around. We first of all ask the question of, what does this tell me about how I should act? What does this tell me about me? That is a subsidiary question. The first thing about Scripture is what does this tell me about God? And the whole story of Abraham, remember, is God revealing himself to Abraham and teaching him about who he is. And so whenever Abraham goes up in obedience to this standard request to sacrifice your precious possession, as he, as he obeys that and he comes up with his child, this God says, stop. What is the message that God is saying to Abraham? He's saying this, I am not like those other gods. I'm not like those other gods who can never be satisfied. I do not want your son. It is dramatic and it's God saying, I am different. And the response needs to be different. So, Abraham calls this place Yahweh Yahweh. The Lord will provide. We 
transcribed it to Jehovah Jireh and we print t-shirts with it on. And we treat God like some kind of spiritual vending machine. God will provide. Almost like, I fancy, I don't know. I fancy a strawberry milkshake. God will provide. Something more is going on here. It's not just a catchphrase. Notice that God provides the sacrificial ram off the back of obedience and trust. Not just as a request or a quick prayer. This provision is made off the back of obedience and trust. Um, this is uh, the transcription of Yahweh. Yahweh, God will provide. This is all about these few words. Trust and obey. If you've been in church for any length of time, you probably are hearing a hymn in your head now. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's my grandmother's favorite hymn. She used to quote it to me all the time, write it in letters. She held on to it to her dying breath, I believe. Trust and obey. Don't let the dittiness of the tune and the saccharineness of being happy with Jesus lose the fact that our walk with God is about trusting and obeying. And this story is all about trust and obey. So at a basic level, is this story just about trusting God and being willing to give up anything for him? Well, in some senses, yes, it is. It's about being willing to give up what is precious to us. Because our relationship with God needs to be number one priority. Above anything else, if our relationship with God is not number one priority, we cannot call him God. He's probably a favorite hobby of ours. That's what makes him your God, that he is number one priority. And if you think, oh, it's a bit of an Old Testament way of looking at it, Jesus talks about this lots. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he's kind of have to prepare to take up a cross. You have to be prepared to leave everything behind and come and follow me. Some people said, we would follow you, but we've got to go and do this first. Jesus says, you are not worthy to follow me. Paraphrased, but you know. God and your relationship is number one. But remember, this is a different kind of situation than the gods of Mesopotamia and even the gods of the 21st century. Because I fear that myself and maybe even we all together at different times still worship God like pagans. We still treat God as a tit-for-tat deity. And that's what Abraham is learning about in this story. So moving on. Our relationship with God needs to be number one. Because too easy that often the good gifts that God gives us too easily become God's. So the blessings that God gives us, a secure home, a safe situation, uh, a good job, a healthy bank balance perhaps, become, and the preservation of that becomes our God. And if you doubt that, just think about where your savings are. Think about what you're prepared to sacrifice in order to have the lifestyle that you have. The gifts of God can often become our gods. Money, relationships, jobs, leisure, family, even ministry 
can get in the way between us and our relationship with God. This story is about more than just giving the best of what we've got to God. We're told in verse 1 that uh, this is a test. Now, we're used to the whole test thing. I've actually got my slides the wrong way around, so I'll go to this next one. Um, We think of tests as a sense of pass or fail. So we, we set a test, and if we do right, brilliant. We've got it sussed. If we do badly, oh, well, we're chucked on the scrap heap. But actually, a real sense of testing is more like this. Testing the quality and readiness of something. It's like when you make a soup and you taste it to test. Is it right? Is it ready? Or like a physics experiment. I'm sure you probably did this, something like this in physics in high school where you get straws or lolly sticks or chopsticks and you make a bridge and then you see how many books or weights or kilogram scales it'll, it'll hold until it cracks. And with each one, you're testing the strength of something. So it's not a pass or fail. It's testing the quality, the purity of this. And this is Abraham's situation. It's not a situation of pass or fail. Trust me, you read the story of Abraham, he fails lots, and God doesn't relinquish his, his love for him. This is a test of the quality. What, what is it about your faith in me that needs testing, God says? Well, the New Testament kind of helps a little bit with this. And these passages in Hebrews 11, 23, in, in Romans 4 and 3, and in Galatians 3, Verse 6, what is Abraham praised for? Is he praised for his abandonment of all worldly possessions and willingness to sacrifice them to his deity? No, he's not, especially in Galatians 3. What is he given credit for? It says he is given credit for believing God. His credit is, it says he believed God. It was credited to him for, as righteousness. So what did he believe about God? Well, it might be useful to understand in the story of Abraham from the very start, whenever he's called by God, right through to here, at least in a matter of chapters, 14 times God repeats the same promise to Abraham, which is about, I've called you, I will give you a child, I will give you sons, I will give you many generations, and you will bless the world through your offspring. 14 times he has promised this. And so that's what he's holding on to. In fact, in, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, God is even more explicit and says, this will be through Isaac that you will have many sons of Abraham. Many sons of Father Abraham. Yeah, we sung it once. It didn't happen. We're not going to do it again. 14 times, he says. And this is to a man and a woman who, to all intents and purposes, Around them, they were, they were considered, they're over the hill. They're, they're has-beens. And remember the, the importance of, of generationalism, about, about your, your being the progenitor of, of, of legacies and heritage and having many children is a sign that you're doing well. And if you didn't, it wasn't. This didn't make sense to Abraham and his culture that you were being, you're going to have children and they're going to spawn the world and they're going to bless the world. They were old. They were on the scrap heap, according to their neighbors. In fact, even Abraham, even Sarah, his wife, laugh at God at the suggestion that he was going to use them. Fourteen times God promises that I will bless you. And so what is, 
He's doing. God is, is promising these things to Abraham. It's repeated. And so Abraham trusts those promises. He trusts that God will look after what is most precious to him. I am pretty convinced that Abraham was sure that he was going to come back down the mountain with Isaac. I think he knew that. And there's three parts of the story that make me think that. First of all, he didn't argue. Yes, I know he was used to the whole concept of child sacrifice. However, whenever Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be wiped off the face of the earth, he kicks up a fuss. He said, really, God, is that what you really want to do? Here, he doesn't kick up a fuss. Is it because he sees there's something else going on? Second of all, whenever he leaves his servants, he turns to them and said, you stay here, we will go up and worship, and then this really easily overlooked bit, and he turns to them and says, we will return afterwards. We will return afterwards. Yes, you could spin it and say, yeah, he was just trying to keep them sweet, but, you know, covering his tracks. And then he's going up, and yes, this slightly comedic element where Isaac kind of looks around going, hold on a second, uh, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide. Yes, it could be that he's just placating him, which is the way a lot of people have understood it. Or is this a statement of faith in this new relationship with this God? He's promised something. So even if it means that you die and you come back, I'm walking back down this mountain with you. This is what he trusts God with. He trusts in God to be faithful to his promises. He trusts God to provide in the end. He trusts God to be different to the other gods. Let me tell you, paganism is alive and well and often breeds quite nicely in well-to-do churches because we worship the gods of the 21st century, which is about comfort, success. It's about wealth. It's about prestige and image. It's all about that. We still worship them. And if you think you don't, let me tell you, at some point in your life you have, or you do, or you will. In small decisions and big ones. What we learn is that God is different to these other gods. These other gods who are never satisfied. You, uh, you worship the God of success, you will never be successful enough. You worship the God of money and comfort, you will never be rich enough. You will never be famous enough to feel secure in yourself if that's what you want. Because these gods are never satisfied. They always want more. I need to work 70, 80, 90 hours a week in order to be successful. Yes, I know I haven't been to any of your school productions. But really, it's worth it. And yet we judge Abraham. This is a hard word to hear. I know, because... We're looking after our family, but is that what God has called us to do? To work our lives and sacrifice our lives, our families, our spirituality, even on the the altar of success and prestige and money? Yeah, we do need these things in order to have a secure life, but there's something else going on. We learn Abraham trusted God. And he put that trust into action through obedience. But what do we learn about God in this? That's our first port of call. Abraham trusted, but what do we learn about God? We learn that he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. 
So as Abraham goes up that hill, I, I've come to think that this is not an act of blind obedience to a capricious God. This is a walk of confidence that I will walk back down again with my son from this God who has promised that my generations will come from him. This God is trustworthy. God says, I don't want your child, I want you to trust me. That is a thing about relationship, not about religion. Religion is one of those kind of things, if you drink salt water, you'll always get thirsty. Relationship covers that. Don't just sacrifice to me, trust me. Trust me. God asks us to trust him. But the thing is, if we're not trusting him, then who are we trusting? If we don't trust God, who do we trust? Have a think about who some of the most trusted professions are. The Maury um, poll did a few um, questions about this. And apparently the most trusted occupations are as follows. Are you ready? So get your smug faces ready. Okay, here we go. Number one, doctors. Yeah, I know you would be smug, wouldn't you? <laughs> Followed by teachers. Slightly less smug, but still it was there, wasn't it? <laughs> Then, swiftly followed by scientists are the next most trustworthy um, professions. And they are followed up by judges. Followed by news readers. <laughs> and then the big boys and girls. Clergy. <laughs> <sighs> Who are more trustworthy than the police. Right, Mick? <laughs> That's why Mick jumped ship, I don't know. And, and, and only slightly less trustworthy than police, but more trustworthy than estate agents or MPs is the stranger in the street. <laughs> so I don't know who you're putting a trust in. Abraham trusted God with everything. He gave him 100% trust, therefore he could obey 100%. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, he's talking about Abraham's Trust in God that he was going to walk back down that mountain with Isaac. Because his trust was bigger than his crisis. So often our crises are bigger than our trust. But Abraham's trust was bigger than his crisis. And I'm not just talking about, in our lives, the major things. I'm talking about crisis as a crisis point is a, is a decision point. So in crisis, in struggle, in difficulties, in choices, we find out where our trust lies. I said I believe that Abraham had every intention of walking down a mountain, even to the point of raising the knife. And sometimes this provision from this trustworthy God in those moments of crises does come at the last moment, whether we like it or not, because that is the way of testing. Do you really trust me? And we have so many stories, I'm sure you've read them, maybe you've experienced them, about God showing up at the last minute and being faithful to his promises. Now, let me tell you, you are sitting on one literally right now. About 150 years ago, a bunch of Christians in this place decided to have a Baptist church. And they had, you know, generally they had a thing called a whip round, you know, offering and all that. And uh, on the night that they had to seal the deal, they were 100 pounds short. In what, 18 what? 18 something, all right? And that's not the time, the years. And on that night, 100 pounds came. Not magically. It wasn't the money fairy it appeared. It probably came from someone's bank account, someone's coffers, and they coughed up and they obeyed 
because they trusted God with what was important. Because he gave them a clear call of what to do. We are sitting in this place that is a response to that. So do we trust God? Or do we not trust God? What stops us from controlling, from trusting God? I think it's because um, we are control freaks. You know, when I say the word control freak, immediately someone comes to mind. Please don't look at me like that. <laughs> because I think we're all control freaks. Some more obvious than the others. But I think we all are because we don't like relinquishing control because control is about trust. I trust myself more than I trust God or other people. We live in a distrusting society. Abraham trusted what mattered to him to God that he was trustworthy enough for to have the life of his own son in his hands. His trust was bigger than his crisis because at the moment of choice he obeyed. Obedience is trust in action. Trust with shoes on. Abraham could only obey because he first trusted. Sometimes we, this is for us, this is our situation now. We may be not asked to literally take our most precious things, whether it's family, friends, a job, a situation, a hope even, or a dream, and literally put them on an altar and burn them. Because that would be a waste of what God has given us. But in our lives, in times of crisis and calm, we need to make choices. And those choices reflect our obedience. Those choices reflect in what we trust. We will devote our lives to something. And what I mean by lives is, are these things. We will devote our time, our finances, our resources, our interests, our family, our relationship, our careers, our security, our gifts, and our energies. We will devote them to something. If not God and the sake of his gospel, it will be to something. It may be to your security, your prestige, your job, your idea of what you should be doing. If it's not from God, you're devoting it to a God. We devote our lives to something. But here's the question. Is that something that promises to bring us security, comfort, well-being, and reward? Is that something, something which provides or something that pilfers? Because God is a God who provides. Not in a kind of wish fulfillment, slot machine kind of way. He provides for the work and the call upon our lives when we act in trust and obedience. He provides. Whereas the gods pilfer. They steal. They're never satisfied. They always want more from you for them. Is it something that provides or pilfers or does it come with a price tag or with a promise? God comes with a promise. I am with you. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not financially, and you'll drive around in a jag and say, God loves me. To prosper as I will be with you. I will provide for you. I will not pilfer like those so-called gods. I do not put a price tag on your devotion. SBC, we have acted in obedience. We were thinking about and honoring John Lewis, but when John Lewis was here, um, he led the church to a place of saying, let's go from one minister to two ministers because we need it. And the church said, yes. And the finances followed. And then another time, a few years later, when it was Rob and Lisa, the church discerned that it was God's will to have a youth minister. Hello, it was me. <laughs> Thank you again. Um, and then a couple of years later, at calls of, I don't know if we can afford this, God said, we need a children's minister. And so we, in faith, had a children's minister. 
And then we had a cap center. And then we had food bank and we've had other people as well. I'm not going to list everybody because you know who you are. And other ministries, oh, we don't have the finances. God does. But he actually asks us to trust and to obey. And so we come to the house. We are having a gift day in a few weeks' time. Yes, we're talking about faith and trust and obedience. Yeah, we're going to be asking about money. But let me say, this is not about squeezing you and saying, really, that 20 quid needs to be £21.50 from you. We have one request to make of ourselves and of this church. And this is the only request we're going to make of you over the next number of weeks. It will be repeated a number of times. And this is it. Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I don't care about what Phil and Lisa want. I don't care what the diaconate is suggesting. I don't even care what Martin Lee and all his wisdom about buildings is suggesting. I don't even care what the price tag suggests I should do. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the question. Because then we cannot fail if we are obeying because we have a God who is trustworthy with whatever we give. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm going to, do I need to get behind this? Do I need to say, in, in, regarding the house or regarding any ministry, God, you have me here. I will give my time, my energies, my support to this. Lord, what do you want me to do? That is the question we're asking. Because this is an invitation to be on board. Not to sit back and watch and go, right, Lord, go ahead, do something. But to be involved. Because Abraham's life story is an invitation to be involved. It's not a business contract. That, you might as well go back to Baal for that. It's not a case of, right, apparently if I trust God, then I'll get what I want afterwards. That's pagan thinking. That is actually prosperity theology. If I am nice to God, God will be nice to me. No, God is trustworthy. And so we trust him with whatever happens. This is about trusting God, the trustworthy one. An invitation to be involved danger not to miss out. We sing songs and we hymns and we've done it even today. We declare our trust and our acknowledgement of God's faithfulness, his goodness and our willingness to obey. It's time for God to say, okay, we'll prove it. Don't just sing about it. Trust in the Lord, not because he won't like us if we don't. That's paganism. Don't, because we, don't think if we don't obey God, then we'll be cursed forever in a day. Again, that's paganism. Trust because he's trustworthy and you know him. And he loves you. Trust in God who is trustworthy and who is faithful. Trust in a God who in this story we see a snapshot of the God who provides for us. We have a snapshot of a God who says you need a child to be sacrificed. And I will provide that child. And so on the mountain called Moriah. There was a thing called a temple built on it. It's where they carried out sacrifices in the Jewish faith. Not far from that mountain was another outcrop of rock where a child was sacrificed. Only he was 33 years of age. And he was sacrificed willingly. He was sacrificed because he was the son of God. And he said, you need to do it, but I'm going to do it. We have a God who provides. We have a God who provides. We have a God who is trustworthy. And what calls us to do this, trust and obey. 
And the knock-on effect is not that you'd be happy in Jesus, but the knock-on effect of trusting and obeying is that others will be blessed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask this one question. As a church, we've asked this question, and we ask this, this question as individuals as well. Lord, what do you want me to do? Help us to be able to trust in you, to believe in you, to put shoes on that trust and obey. Because we know, Lord, that when you have called your people to do that, we've read the books, we've seen the stories of people who step out and say, I trust you, God, and you have provided for your will. You are faithful. You are trustworthy. You are the God who provides and provides in himself your son Jesus for us. We thank you, God. We trust you, God. Show us what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.